I want to thank Steve Hageman for his great kindness in presiding this morning, and also thank you for the request for prayers for Nathan. I didn't know he was going to make that, but he certainly prayers, and not only Nathan, but all of the young men all over the United States, all 50 states will be taking that particularly tough test at that time, and I'm sure that you know people that will want you to be praying for them. I want you to help me read the scripture, and you can do that by turning to selection 59 in the back of the hymn book. This is one of the most familiar passages in the Bible, and if we were to hand out little slips of paper and ask people to select a portion of scripture which they uh, loved and admired, this would certainly rank very high. Uh, this uh, passage here uh, is an integral part of our study at prayer meeting, and I have been asked by some of the people who have been at our regular Wednesday evening prayer service, on Wednesday afternoon and Wednesday evening, we have go been going through 1 Corinthians. And so last week we completed the 12th chapter of 1 Corinthians, and we just got to touch on chapter 13. Next Wednesday night, we take up chapter 14, and uh, this important passage of Scripture comes right in the middle of one of the most vital sections of that important book. And so I want us to read it in unison, because we have been talking about the gifts of the Holy Spirit at prayer meeting, and uh, when we speak of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, if we want to know how those gifts may be used, uh, for the glory of God and for the upbuilding of his church, then this blessed passage here gives us the key. I've often said to people that I'm glad there was a row in the church in Corinth over speaking in tongues, because if there hadn't been, you wouldn't have any 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians in your Bible. But because of that, this chapter is given, and it gives us the key. Let's read it in unison, Selection 59 earnestly desire the higher gift. I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clang cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful. It is not arrogant or rude. Love does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrong, but rejoices in the right. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecy, it will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For our knowledge is imperfect and our prophecy is imperfect. But when the perfect comes, the imperfect will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, 
I gave up childish ways, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall understand fully, even as I have been fully understood. So faith, hope, love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Make love your aim. Amen. Now, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your gifted servants who have ministered to us in music. We bless you for the message which they have sung. We thank you for the testimony we have already heard, for the testimony of a life that's beginning a new walk in discipleship uh, with you in Christopher's baptism. And now we pray that you will bless us as we seek some instruction from your word that will enable us to live and work together in the happy way you want us to. And we pray that you will take the gifts which we give and superintend their use to the end that they may bring much honor and glory to your name. For Jesus' sake, amen. I mentioned a moment ago that at our prayer service, uh, we have been studying systematically through the remarkable letter of Paul to the church in Corinth. It's impossible for anyone to go through this letter uh, of 1 Corinthians without being moved at the uh, way in which this great man of God deals uh, with the problems that existed in this church. And by the supervision of the Holy Spirit's keeping for us this letter, uh, we have these scriptures by which we are to live today. Uh, almost every kind of problem you can think of uh, springs up in the church at Corinth. Uh, Corinth is a huge metropolis. Paul had gone there and the Lord had given him a vision that even in this city uh, there were many people who would come to him. And so Paul had preached faithfully the gospel of Jesus Christ. After he had left there, he began to receive some uh, disturbing reports from the household of Chloe, one of the believers in that assembly of believers, that there was trouble back in Corinth, and so he writes a letter back. In that letter, he deals with some specific issues that have been brought up. There were people who were thinking that because they were baptized by a Paul, that they were better than someone who was baptized by Peter. Uh, there were people who thought uh, that because uh, they had heard Apollos, a gifted and powerful orator who was eloquent in his speech, that uh, they were superior to others. And so he deals with, with divisions that are in this church and divisions that occur amongst us. He puts those things to rest by seeking to tell them that Jesus Christ is the great cornerstone. He is the one to which each one of us must look and it's his glory that will always must be a primary, a primary consideration with us. He says in one place that knowledge puffs up, and that's true. Even a knowledge of the Bible can puff us up. Uh, we can use it uh, to beat someone else over the head. Uh, we can intimidate others. And he wants us to see that the gifts that the Holy Spirit brings to us are wonderful gifts. Uh, he tells us they're important. We should seek the gifts. He tells us the gifts are varied. 
He tells us that the gifts are to be governed by Scripture. He tells us that the gifts are to be used for the good of the whole body and that they are always to be governed by love. And so come to this 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. Uh, we uh, find him uh, speaking. I've often thought about the man who wrote this down literally. Uh, I dictate letters to the secretary, to our secretary. I've often thought it, I've been Tertius, the scribe. That day, you know, parchment was so expensive, and the, in writing the Greek down, you needed a man who could get the most on that piece of parchment. And so they hired out for this purpose. And can you imagine Paul dictating away to Tertius the scribe? And he comes to this marvelous passage here. I think Tertius must have felt something of the awe and the power that we still feel as the Spirit of God moves these great words uh, to us today. What if I speak with the tongues of men or of angels? But I do not have love. I am become as a noisy or a clanging cymbal. He's thinking about the pagan temples in, Tar in Corinth. And the play on the Greek words uh, here is um, interesting because it sounds like the clamor of cymbals and gongs. Uh, the Greek itself. And Paul had just been speaking about this, and he said, what if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels? What language does an angel speak? I'm sure our friend from China thinks they speak Chinese. If you were from the Hebrides, you would think they speak Gaelic. What language does an angel speak? Paul said, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I am become as a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I think that what he saw happening in Corinth was what he had seen happen in his own life. You see, Paul had been a Pharisee. He had been very zealous for the things of God, so much so that he tithed of every penny he got. So much so that he steeped himself in a knowledge of the scriptures that was impressive and remarkable. So that he could hold people in awe by his grasp of scripture. As far as zeal was concerned, he would have gladly given his body to be burned for his faith as a Pharisee. But the thing that was missing in his life was the thing which Jesus Christ brought when he met him on the road to Damascus. For as a Pharisee, his head was full of divine knowledge and law and his heart with great zeal, but it was not motivated by love. He saw this coming in the church in Corinth, and so he says, If I speak tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I am become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I attract attention to myself. I've often tried to point out that uh, no one wants to hear a cymbal solo. <laughs> They'll wake you up. 
But who wants to hear a cymbal solo? No one. It's a percussion instrument, and it attracts attention to itself. And Paul says, if I have the tongues of men and of angels, and I don't have love to make me use it as the servant of everyone else, then what I'm doing is attracting attention to myself. I'm become like those heathen temples, a noisy gong, a clanging cymbal. What if I do have the gift of prophecy? And I would assume by this a knowledge of the Bible that would lead me into all of the intricate mysteries of the book of Revelation that we now have, or of being able to see God's hand in all of history and how it works now, and of then being able to speak this with great power. What if I've got that gift, but I do not have love? Paul says, if I have the gift of prophecy and I know all mystery and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, that would be some faith, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, if I deliver my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. The first three verses of chapter 13 tell us what a life is like without love. That's the way his life was when he was known as Saul of Tarsus, the learned student of Gamaliel, the great Pharisee with all of his knowledge. But then when he meets Jesus Christ as his Savior and Lord, he gets a new mind. And what is the love that he talks like here? Love is patient. Here he gives us characteristics in verse 4. Love is patient. Uh, love is kind. Uh, yeah, patience is, uh, means suffering with sin. And to have patience, uh, it's interesting that doctors have patience. I've got to go see one in the morning. Uh, you, you're, you're to suffer, but it is with some sense. You're to be uh, patient. And here we are to be patient. We are usually patient with our own children. Are we patient with other children? The next word is kindness, and that comes from our word for kindred. And it means, though, a special sort of attitude to people that are kin to us. We make a special allowance for them. Do we make that allowance for other people as well? We ought to. Love is patient. Love is kind. I watched the Secretary of Education the other day on C-SPAN. He had a terrible thing happen. He was speaking at a huge uh, educational meeting in Washington. There was a whole cluster of microphones. He got up with his carefully prepared manuscript and he started, and it wouldn't work. And you could tell his throat was dry and he took a drink of water 
And uh, he asked for some helper, and they came up and set up another microphone. It still didn't work. They set up another microphone. It didn't work. They set up another microphone. It was almost becoming funny, but you felt sorry for the poor guy. I felt sorry for the people that were bringing those microphones up there, too, because it was, I'm sorry, Mr. Secretary, we can't hear you. A big educational meeting. People all over the United States and representatives from other places, and it wouldn't work. And he was tied to his manuscript because it was an important address that was going to be cited and quoted. But the one thing that I noticed about it was the patience that that man had and the great kindness. Now, you'd think with all the money the government's got that they'd have a sound system that worked. Uh, but it didn't work. And yet he was patient with it. And uh, I, I thought that is remarkable. He, he was suffering with sense. He realized there wasn't anything he could do about it, that they had to bring the thing in there and to get whatever it was corrected. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. Love does not brag. It is not arrogant. This chops us all down pretty quickly. If we, uh, Socrates said that the unexamined life is not worth living. And if we examine our lives in the light of these, if we gave ourselves a big test, and we test ourselves to see if we are patient, if we are kind, whether or not we are jealous, whether or not we brag, whether or not we are arrogant, Love does not act unbecomingly. Some of the people at the Lord's Supper in Corinth were getting drunk. Some of the people were hogging all the food to themselves at the family night supper and not letting anyone else. Love does not act unbecomingly. Love does not seek its own. It is not easily provoked. <laughs> One of the translations of this says, does not get in a huff, H-U-F-F. Uh, over in England, I, I used to try to play checkers when I was a kid out in Texas, and, and uh, I went to England, and they got something like it called draft. And you know, if you don't jump someone, uh, they say, I huff you, and then they can pick up your piece. And uh, this... Uh, is, it always seemed sort of a metaphor to me. I huff you. <laughs> uh, we become huffy uh, here. Uh, but love does not do this. Love is not easily provoked, does not keep a score of wrong, does not take into account a wrong suffered. That's a tremendous virtue in itself, not to keep a record of the wrongs that are done to us does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Those are the qualities of love. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It isn't glad when it hears some scandal. It isn't happy at the news of someone else's failure. And yet these are the things that really examine our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And when we do examine ourselves this way, it makes each one of us want to rededicate our lives to the Lord. Uh, our, will forgive me for this repetition, but I can remember one Sunday when I was going to preach over at Hendersonville, and my wife and I had had a frank exchange of views at the, <laughs> at the breakfast table, and I started out the door, 
And I grabbed it and, put, and saw that it was closed firmly. And um, then she came to the door to call something out to me when I left. And I said, what do you, what do you think I ought to preach on? And she said, the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. <laughs> you know, that's good. Because it's pretty easy to live with someone the day before and the day after they preach that sermon. Uh, uh, you, you've got it here. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's a great lot to lay upon us, isn't it? Love never fails. But now look where Paul puts the emphasis. In the, the had a definition of what life is like without love. The next paragraph is life with love. And at verse 8, begins the permanence of love. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. One day, all of the prophecies will be fulfilled and completed. If there are tongues, what will we need tongues in heaven for? They will cease. If there is knowledge, what if we've got all this knowledge? It will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. They put up the scaffolding over here when they erect these beautiful stones in the building. But when they finish putting the stones in place and get them cemented with them, they take the scaffolding down. All of these things, the prophecy and the knowledge and the tongues, and these are all legitimate gifts of the Holy Spirit. But one day they'll be dismantled and taken away. Now what will last? He says, when I was a child, I used to speak as a child. What's the object of a child? It's to grow up. It's to mature. That's the glory, it's to grow up. A little child grows. We love them at each stage of development. But the, the point is to grow up. When I was a child, I used to speak as a child. But when I become a man, I don't speak childish talk anymore. I don't say to my wife, hubby would like a cup of coffee. That's dumb. Uh, it's inappropriate. Uh, when I was a child, I used to speak as a child. I used to think as a child. I reasoned as a child. But when I became a man, I did away with childish things. <laughs> you, you ever watch children uh, skating? Go to an ice rink sometimes, or watch them play ball. I love to, you know, when our own children are going through this, we go see all these things. And I used to go, and once in a while there are children who have parents who are away a lot or uh, else for some reason the child does not have a father here. And I've often been a sort of surrogate father. You watch uh, uh, people doing things, and then some little boy will come up and say, Hey, Mr. Thielman, will you watch me? Well, he wants me to watch him. And that's good. I've been the official watcher before. 
at football games and at basketball games and at track meets and fishing or hunting or doing a lot of other things. We want to be watched. And, uh, but that's a part of the growth process, and the Lord is watching us when we grow up. When I become a man, I did away with childish things. Now, he says, we see in a mirror dimly, uh, but then face to face. Now I only know in part, but then shall I know fully, just as I have also been fully understood. And then he says, now abideth faith, hope, and love. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Now let me pose a question. Paul says, by grace are ye saved through faith. And we know we are justified by faith. But here he says that faith is not as great as love. Now abideth faith, but one day I'm in heaven, and I don't need to have faith there. One day all my hopes are realized, and I don't need to have hope in front of me anymore. But all through eternity, I will need love. And without it, I'm nothing. Now by the faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. And then he says, pursue love. Make love your aim. Now, Wednesday night, we'll take up the part in 14 that's more difficult to deal with. Uh, but I, I want to, uh, you know, I had a note this week from some lady who was thanking us, some people in our church, and asking me, among others, to express thanks for some folks who had gone over to visit a little boy in the hospital in Asheville who'd had a, a long eight-hour operation. And uh, in the, the letter to me, she said that uh, she was grateful for an illustration that I'd used some time ago uh, about uh, Desert Peak. Some of you have heard the illustration. I congratulate you on your excellent memory. And I'm going to uh, give you a chance to get the details of it down again because it, it sums up what I've been trying to say. This uh, it comes from a little book by Bruce Larson, which I highly recommend. He said the following letter was found in a baking powder can it was wired to the handle of an old iron pump. It offered the only hope of drinking water on a very long and seldom used trail across the Amagarsa Desert. This is what it said, and I quote, This pump is all right as of June 1932. I put a new sucker washer in it, and it ought to last five years. But the washer dries out, and the pump has got to be primed. Under the white rock, I buried a bottle of water out of the sun, cork end up. There's enough water in it to prime the pump, but not if you drink some first. Pour out about one-fourth and let her soak to wet the leathers. Then pour in the rest, medium fast, and pump like crazy. You'll get water. This well never has run dry. Have faith. When you get watered up, fill the bottle and put it back like you found it for the next feller, signed Pete. Got a P.S. Don't go drinking up the water first. Prime the pump with it, and then you'll get all you can hold. Well, now, those words were written based upon this passage of Scripture. Now abideth faith, hope, and love. 
because you have to have faith that the man who left the water there was not some kind of practical joker who was going to cause you to suffer as a result of him. You have to hope in what he's done. And then you exercise that faith, you exercise the hope, and then you understand that the love that put it there is put it there for a purpose, to help. This kind of love is not lazy. It's love that works. You pump like crazy. Then you get all the water you want. And then you fill the bottle up for the next feller. And that's what's here. And that's what gives us the way by which we are to use our spiritual gifts. When we use them in this way, then we receive blessings. And other people are blessed through our gifts uh, that the Holy Spirit has given to us too. You ever watch a great symphony orchestra? When they're tuning up, it's really, oh, it's such an awful sound, the cacophony of the wretched, everyone's tuning his instrument separately and all that racket is going on. And it's awful. And then the maestro will come and he taps. And then people all stop that. And then when he gives the downbeat, there is harmony. Harmony together. Harmony because they're under the direction of a conductor who knows what he's doing. He has a piece of music in front of him, and they're looking at that, and they know that too. Well, here are our scriptures, and they are to guide us as our rule of faith and practice. We are to look at Jesus Christ and his love, exercised by the Holy Spirit over is to cause us to work together in harmony and unity. Last week I was astounded when I was in Clover, South Carolina, at the number of people who listen on WMIT. Uh, it comes powerfully into the Clover, Shelby, um, Kings Mountain area. There was a great huge fellow who rededicated his life to the Lord. He, ho he was voted the, the uh, outstanding center in the USFL. Wayne hopes to be the starting center for Atlanta, or at least one of the centers for Atlanta Falcons this fall. And uh, he came up to me after the meeting. He's only 25, and he's so huge that when he reached over to hug me, I thought he was going to crunch my head. He, he pulled me down close to him, and my head came to about where his shirt pocket was. A great football player. And we were talking one night after the service when we were eating something together. And I was asking him a favorite question of mine about athletes and that working together and that harmony. And uh, he that the key lineman up in the front in a pro football team learned to think together in such harmony that they dread substitution. They dread any other person coming in because they can... They can feel when they're going to move, and that's very important uh, to them. It's a, it's a critical game. They develop that mind. Well, Paul lost his mind on the road to Damascus, and he got the mind of Christ. Had Jesus Christ never lived, Paul could never have written these words in the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. There's no danger of any expositor completing all that they mean. They whittle us all down to size. I never feel 
like I'm a greater hypocrite than when I read this passage of Scripture. The unexamined life is not worth living. But this mirrors the life of Christ. You can take out the word love and put in the word Jesus, and it goes all the way through that way. Take out that word and put your name in and see how far you go with it, or how far I go. I just made that fatal blunder by saying you instead of I. Paul was so gracious that when he comes to this, he didn't say, though you speak with the tongue of men and of angels. He said, though I speak with the tongue of men and of angels. He knew what he could do. He remembered the row that he'd had with John Mark, with Barnabas. And he knew his own failures, and he knew how the Holy Spirit could work in him and make his life what it ought to be. There's always tension in this life. But we're tied to the Lord. You ever watch a kite fly up in the air? I, I love to watch kites. And sometimes the cord will burn your hand when it goes way up high. But you're holding on to that kite. You know, you can cut the cord, and that kite will take a sail, tail spin and go down. But there's a certain tension that exists here. The Holy Spirit comes, and he lifts us. But we're tied to Christ with our gift, and our gifts are always to be used in love and always for his glory. Now, Heavenly Father, I look at my own life and I realize that I reach my best only when I'm obedient to the Holy Spirit in following the life of Christ. We know this passage of Scripture, Lord, in our heads, and we know that it's true. And yet, Father, so few of us really seriously seek to live up to it day by day. These great words that we've sung and that we've read, and these thoughts that have come into our head during this time, could make a big difference in our homes, in our relationship with our wives or our husband or our children or the people that we work with day by day, but only let go and let you really have your way. And we pray that you will, that you will hold us closely to you. We thank you that you do tie us with your love and tied to that love, we won't go into a tailspin and fall. But without it, all we can do is go into a tailspin. And so we pray that you will keep us this day. Not only this day and this hour, but all the days of our life, helping us to be faithful to Jesus Christ. May any person here who does not know him as Savior and Lord, seek out some place this day where they may yield their lives to his lordship. And will you help those of us who have walked a long time with him, but have not been very faithful to him, to renew our dedication to him today, and to live more faithfully under his lordship. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, love of God our Father, and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our teacher and guide, be and abide with us all now and forevermore.